We've got even more earnings and a new plan for Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. You're in the right place, folks, because this is where the money is. Welcome to the show. It is Friday. It is Wonderful Friday. I'm Matt Copenheffer. I'm here with David Hansen. David, last week you gave us some picks <laughs> for football. They didn't work out so well. One for three? One and three? One and three. But, but I'm going to give you another shot this week. What are your picks for football, for pigskin this week? Seahawks and the Patriots. Okay. I'll probably... Seahawks. So that's, that bodes well for the Niners and the Broncos. <laughs> Wow, you're betting against the Niners and the Broncos. That's I interesting. Am. Okay, you really think the Patriots are going to beat the Broncos? I don't know. Okay, <laughs> well, on that note, uh, I encourage all the WTMIers to keep track of David's picks. They did last week. You guys did a great job keeping him honest. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's move on to the headlines. First, we'll call it a quote-unquote headline of the day. We've got a whole bunch of them here. Earnings continue to pour in, David. Uh, we had Morgan Stanley this uh, today. We had Bank of New York Mellon. We had GE2, which has the GE Capital Division, which is essentially a, a giant financial company. Uh, let's start with Morgan Stanley. Uh, right off the top, fixed income trading was down. Mm-hmm. It was down similar to, to the other banks, to the other trading, big trading banks that we saw. Uh, I can't say that that was much of a surprise. Legal costs, not that much of a surprise. I think overall, the Morgan Stanley story of, of turning into a, a more stable sort of money management business Still a long way off. Right. Trading, although it's not a big profit contrib- as big of a profit contributor as the brokerage, still a big part of the business. Yeah, that's th- that's their goal is to become less gr- less risky. So if we did have no- another financial crisis, they wouldn't be in the same situation. They wouldn't be. They were screaming. They were, they were screaming pretty loud. Uh, so yeah, they-, they took a big legal expense this quarter in relation to some mortgage-backed security litigation and investigations. So I'm sure they'll have some announcements coming fairly soon uh, on. That front, they are on track to hit some of their goals. They have a goal to get to ten percent ROE mm-hmm. in the next couple of years, trying to get make their margins better in the wealth management business. They're on track from a stock perspective. It looks fairly valued to me. I, I don't think this is a, a glaring cheap value stock right here. It certainly doesn't look super expensive either. But and take a look at the, at the multiple. What is it trading at right now? Just, just over one times, uh, so one times book. So which we've said is a relatively cheap valuation for Goldman Sachs. So you think that Goldman Sachs is that much better of a business than Morgan Stanley? I like it a little bit better. It's going to be a little bit more volatile because they're not moving towards this just wealth manager focused mm-hmm. company. But I like it over the long haul. It, I don't dislike Morgan Stanley, but I'm not super excited about it either from a stock perspective. Bank of New York Mellon, anything jump out at you in the earnings there? It was The stock was down pretty significantly, right? Not significantly, a couple percentage points. Um, the business is stable. That's a stable business. Um, it's not very exciting, and some people like that. Some people don't like that. Trading at 18 times earnings. <laughs> Some pe- most people are people. And ju- jumping over to saying how we're, this is trading at 18 times earnings, this is more of a fee-based business, so it's going to be more dependent on, on the fees rather than earning on those assets on the book. So it's trading at 18 times earnings, so not particularly cheap. Uh, when the market's trading at 18 to 19 times earnings, it's a stable business. It's a good business. Again, not trying to be a downer on Friday here, but... Not one I get super excited about either. That said, though, this this is still a business that, that relies on, on uh, rate spreads, mm-hmm. and those spreads, uh, rates are low, those spreads are low. That's that's really uh, being a challenge on the business. One of the things that always, th- that I can't help but have jump out at me every time I look at uh, Bank of New York Mellon's earnings is just the enormity of this oh, yeah. business and the presence that it has. 
at, at the end of the last year, $27.6 trillion in assets under custody and administration. That's huge. This is a bank that has its tentacles uh, well in, in in many places. Uh, moving over to GE. Um, GE, the, the GE Capital Division is shrinking. That's, that's right. sort of one of the goals of GE as they move forward. They don't want to be so reliant on it. They don't want to be so exposed. Should we have something similar to the financial crisis happen again? Hopefully we don't. Um, but still, there's $253 billion in financing receivables on the balance sheet at GE Capital. That's not insignificant at all. Um, one of the things I noticed about GE Capital is that, like the other banks, uh, looking at the the liability side, the funding side of the business, they're making the shift that a lot of the banks are, which is they're uh, growing their deposits, deposits up 16% year over year, while they're shrinking their uh, their debt, both their short-term and long-term debt. That helps even as the rates on the asset side of the balance sheet come down, mm-hmm. uh, they, they improve that funding cost side of it. Right, I guess what people used to say about GE <laughs> is that they were a bank with an industrial arm, industrial arm. Now they're trying to move towards more industrials with some finance involved. Uh, looking at the stock, is this one that you could potentially be interested in? I mean, trading at just over 10 times earnings, over 3% dividend yield. Do you see this as kind of just a safe wealth preserver, get that dividend over time? Or what are your thoughts on that? I, that's a good question. I, 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 really, I really don't know. I, I think safe wealth preserver mm-hmm. is a reasonable way to talk about it. You may have people that are staying away from GE because of the finance division, right. uh, similar to kind of the story that we've talked about with a lot of the bigger banks. Uh, so that could make it attractive, despite the fact that the finance division is shrinking and getting safer, while you still have these, uh, all of these attractive businesses on the non-finance side. One other bank that I'll point out here, much smaller bank that that reported earnings today, Bank of the Ozarks. Mm. I've talked about this before, both on the site and on this show, as really just a a high-quality bank that that has shown how banking uh, can get done. One point that I'll make here is as we move into this new era of banking that a lot of people are talking about, concerns over the ability of banks to earn the way they did in the past, Bank of the Ozarks doesn't do a lot of the exotic stuff that the banks did prior to the financial crisis, yet for 2013, 2.04% return on assets. That's huge. That's really impressive. And a 15.6% return on equity. So this is a bank that's proving that you still can get really attractive returns, and that's just from running a quality banking business. At the same time, only 7.7 times asset leverage there. So this isn't a heavily leveraged bank to earn those kind of returns. Impressive. Um, and in terms of being able to earn the way it has, it's really pretty simple. Efficiency ratio at 46. That's a very low efficiency ratio. That means that, that the cost structure mm-hmm. is where it needs to be, where it should be, and a lot more of the money is falling down to the bottom line. And 0.43% non-performing loan ratio. Bank of the Ozarks is making loans to people who are paying them back. That's actually pretty important. That's ideal. I would like it's that. It's pretty ideal. Moving on to the second headline. Second headline going over to MarketWatch. Got a little bit... Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. New House Democrat proposal would sell off Fannie and Freddie. Uh, and this is coming from uh, John Delaney, John Carney, Jim Himes. Winding down Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac over a five-year time period, roughly, that's what they envision. Um, similar to the Corker Warner bill, they would have private capital in the first loss position for the first 5%, mm-hmm. and then all the losses beyond that would be a combination of private capital and 
Ginny May. So still having some government in- involvement in there. Unlike the Jeb Hensarling bill, all these bills floating around. It's just right. insane. Everybody's got to have their Fannie and And of Freddie course, bill. there's the Berkowitz plan. It's like the flavor of the month. The Everybody's got to have one. Uh, chances of something like this going through and working, maybe. Uh, it did say that it would try to wind down Fannie and Freddie and potentially sell them in the future as just private insurance companies. Maybe that's a good thing for these shareholders that we've talked about before that are kind of stuck in purgatory here Mm -hmm. in terms of not knowing what's going to happen. Some people arguing that it was against the law to do what uh, the government did. Uh, So maybe if they keep that capital structure, there's something there for the preferreds and maybe the common shareholders. So chances of this going through, like I said, probably not great, but just another proposal on the table now. Sure, I'll just tack on to that, that uh, Ginny May, just for, for people who aren't t- totally familiar with it, uh, this is a, a similar, This is but this is a fully government-owned right. organization, Ginny May is, doesn't buy, uh, buy loans the way that Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac does, nor does it uh, structure and sell uh, securities the way Fannie and, and Freddie does. So Ginny Mae would just be giving sort of the government blessing right. on, on the loans, the guarantee there. Uh, we ha- we're probably not done hearing proposals for Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. Uh, I know at least supposedly Maxine Walters, uh, Waters, mm-hmm. Maxine Waters is preparing one as well. So maybe we'll hear that in the near future. Uh, as I look ahead out to the foreseeable future, at least, uh, my thought is that right now, Mel Watt, the new head of uh, the FHFA, is probably the biggest thing for shareholders of Fannie Mae yeah. and Freddie Mac to watch. The, the, these plans, maybe they'll come to fruition at some point, but Mel Watt is there. He's there now. He's sort of an unknown entity in terms of what exactly he's going to do. So I'd keep a close eye on what he's doing. Yep. Let's go to the third headline. Uh, this is from the Wall Street Journal. Bank execs shrug off Volcker rule. Even Jamie Dimon, I think we could hit this one pretty quickly. But basically, I, I think we throw this in the folder of things that aren't really all that surprising because prior to the Volcker rule going into effect, you don't want banks just rolling over and saying, yeah, go ahead, take away one of our business lines. Uh, but now on the other side of it where it's been implemented, you also don't want them saying, well, the sky is actually falling because we knew from the beginning that the sky wasn't falling, right? Right, and they said on, they had quotes in that article from multiple CFOs and CEOs from the conference calls yesterday saying that this isn't a revenue issue. We're not going to lose 20% of our revenue because of the Volcker rule. This is a, a small issue of cost. We have more compliance costs now. We have to do some things that the government's asking for. So that's the issue. That's how it affects the bottom line. It's not going to be huge. And that's what we've been saying. There was some worry about the collateral damage that the Volcker rule would do to other businesses outside of prop trading. I think that was delayed, basically, mm-hmm. and that's why you've, part of the reason why you've got this reaction. Uh, moving on to uh, look ahead to next week. It's Friday. It's going to be a, a, a big week next week, actually a shortened week next week. It is. Uh, Monday, the markets are closed, so we're not going to see much action, obviously, on Monday. But moving ahead to Tuesday... Earnings are going to continue to come in. We've got Synovus, uh, the bank Synovus reporting on Tuesday. What's interesting to watch here is that 2013, big news for Synovus was that they redeemed uh, TARP. Yep. That was a big event in 2013. So this is a bank that's truly still in recovery mode as far out as we are from the crash. Um, Synovus is in that southeast type of uh, the southeast region that was hit particularly hard in the housing crisis. So there's maybe more opportunity for bounce back there in terms of their business and their balance sheet. Uh, We'll also see 
Regions report on Tuesday. That's another southeastern bank. Uh, and Travelers, uh, I think that's the first insurer that mm-hmm. we're going to see first the big uh, reporting. And that'll be, that'll be interesting to see how, how rates have been holding up in the insurance market. Yeah, I had Regions down as well. You talked about Bank of the Ozarks. Regions needs to become what Bank of the Ozarks is doing. If only. A, a, a normal bank that has good, low-cost deposits mm-hmm. and makes good loans into, in a region that they have a good footprint in. Regions isn't the, the 20th biggest bank in the Southeast. They have a big presence in, in Georgia, Alabama, South Carolina, et cetera. So doing the small stuff, getting deposits right. They had a lot of CDs on their books that are slowly rolling off, so that's making their uh, cost structure a little bit better. But if they can just get to being the Bank of the Ozarks of kind of that area as well. So that's what they need to do. That's it. U.S. Bancorp reporting on Wednesday. This is, I think, unarguably one of the the safest, one of the best run of the the biggest banks uh, out there. Anything in particular that you'll be watching for at U.S. Bancorp? I don't think so. I think U.S. Bancorp's one of the... If there's a a bank that you don't really need to look at their quarterly, quarterly results... It's U.S. Bancorp, in my opinion. It's going to be very similar to kind of what you see at a Wells Fargo, even less so, less volatile with some of the, the mortgage stuff and, and market stuff. But U.S. Bancorp, business as usual. There you go. Uh, Thursday, Key Corp, Fifth Third Bancorp, Banco Popular, uh, Discover Financial, and E-Trade all reporting there on Thursday. Uh, Discover... Interesting story here. This, this was one of my picks for the, the inaugural TMF stock draft. Uh, I'm going to be interested in how the progress is continuing in, in sort of building out the different pieces of this business um, in terms of having the student loan uh, portfolio there, creating a direct-to-consumer or, or building the correct direct-to-consumer bank while continuing to foster that core credit card business. I think those are all interesting pieces. Uh, I think the question for me is, does that all come together? Does that all work over the long term as opposed to having a laser focus on the credit card business uh, that, that's sort of core to DFS? Yeah, I, I voiced some concerns about their student loan interest, but upon looking into them a little bit more, I feel like I have to give them the benefit of the doubt that they're not going to go out and write bad loans. If you look at their credit card portfolio in terms of charge-offs over the last year, it's incredible compared to That's true. Capital One, J.P. Morgan, Bank of America. They're kind of on par with American Express. And you're thinking about everyone thinks Discover is caters to the low end, not as wealthy people. Mm-hmm. Their charge-off rates have been awesome. So I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt that they know what they're doing in the student loan space. Not too much uh, ahead on the economic calendar. Existing home sales we'll see next week. This is the uh, between existing home sales and new home sales. This is the larger of the of the transaction markets for the real estate market. Um, but not really too much to keep on your radar for economics next week. We are, however, going to have a lot of non-financial earnings next week. Tuesday, J&J, Verizon, IBM. Wednesday is Coach. Thursday, Union Pacific, McDonald's, Southwest, uh, Southwest Airlines, Starbucks. And then Friday, we've got Procter & Gamble. These will all give a flavor towards how the non-financial uh, companies are doing and with some of these, I'm thinking IBM, maybe Verizon, um, possibly, well, those are the two big ones here. Maybe Union Pacific as well. Give some sense of uh, corporate spending and, and growth uh, as far as that goes. Mm-hmm. Moving on to the mailbag. Ready? Ready mailbag. For the mailbag. Let's do it. All right. We've got an email address, WTMI at fool.com. Send us an email. We love to hear from our listeners. We love to hear from the WTMI community. Our question for today, this is from Vishu. I've been listening to your show from from the past month, and I'm ready to buy my first stock. Can you suggest for me a couple of stocks that I can hold for, say, the next six months, which have medium risk and high return potential? 
I have a personal budget of $5,000 and can take a uh, little, little risk. I don't know if he means just a little risk or a little risk is <laughs> mm-hmm. in give me something risky. Right off the top, uh, let, I'll, I'll point out that generally speaking, <clears throat> when we're talking on this show, or I think when we're generally talking about foolish investing, we're not really talking about like a six-month time frame or even a year-long time frame, which is a lot of what Wall Street tends to focus on. We're thinking about long-term business ownership, which you want to think about in chunks of five years or, or 10 years or even 20 years. So the first thing here is that if it's money that you're going to need within the next six months, the stock market probably isn't the best place for it. Actually, Definitely. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll go beyond that. Yeah, the stock market is not the right place for it. That money is best kept liquid, maybe in some sort of short-term uh, CD or security that you know that you'll be able to get your value back in six months. And, and that's not because businesses are going to could just deteriorate completely in the next six months. It's possible. But what's the buffet? That the stock market in the short run is a voting machine. Mm-hmm. People can suddenly vote the, the different way in the next six months. But in the long run, what is it, it's a weighing machine. Is that what he says? And that's Graham. Uh, oh, it's Graham. There you go. Well, Buffett but, said it. Yeah, they've, they've all said it. Yeah, they've all, uh, they've all said it. Yeah, Everyone so if you're thinking about a business, don't think about a business growing its, its profit over the next six months. Think about what's it going to do over the five years. And that's how you should think about the stock as well. So in, in terms of, let's say that instead of saying that that was six months, let's say he said for the next five years, what are some, what are some starter stocks, one or two starter stocks that you'd think about for somebody just getting into the market? Just getting into the market. Uh, if we're going to stick in the, the financial universe here, I'll, I'll go with U.S. Bancorp. We just talked about it. And maybe it's not the, the cheapest bank out there, but I think it's really well run. You can listen to the comments from management, understand what makes a good bank because they have done it over the long run. I, I, one of the things, and, and this kind of goes to something that you've, you just said, I think, yesterday, is that when you buy a company, you want it to be something that you're going to follow along with. You want to mm-hmm. learn from it. So uh, Berkshire Hathaway isn't a bad choice. That Obviously, the B shares, not the A shares, given most people's budgets. But following along with what Buffett says, with what Buffett's doing, with what's going on within the various businesses of Berkshire Hathaway, it's... I guess a little bit more complex than, than, than a lot of businesses, but the businesses within Berkshire Hathaway are not that complex. Right. Um, so that would be that would be a possibility. And I don't. It's not a screaming bargain right now, but it's not a terrible price. Uh, in terms of banks, U.S. Bancorp not a bad place to go. Um, I think Wells Fargo would be a good bank to learn from. Bank of the Ozarks, which we just talked about earlier in the show. It's on the pricey side, but that's a well-run bank. And again, from the learning perspective, uh, that could be a good bank to learn from. All right. So hopefully we gave them something to put on their watch list. So maybe to be aware, six months, not stock market, maybe not the best place to keep Ex- Exactly, exactly. So now, um, as we introduced, started to introduce last week, we have uh, Friday interviews. This week we talked to Morgan Housel of Motley Fool One. Mm-hmm. So we're going to cut away for a second to that interview, and we'll be right back. Cool. Well, I'm here today with uh, Morgan Housel of Motley Fool One. Morgan, thanks a lot for joining us. Thanks for having me. You're obviously known for a lot of your your innovative looks at uh, macroeconomics. What do you think from an investor's perspective? What are the three most important economic numbers to follow? I think one of the problems with economic numbers is that by design, they're not meant to reflect your personal situation. So a lot of people don't trust the economic numbers that come out because they say the headline says the unemployment rate is falling. But then they look at themselves and they say, my neighbor just got laid off and my <laughs> uncle just got laid off. And they, So they say, look, that's that, that, number, that number can't be true. 
But you know, there are 315 million people in this in this country. But all the economics we look at are average, so they don't apply to 99.9 percent of people. So I think the most important economic numbers for people is whatever your own personal situation is. I mean, and that sounds simple, but I think I think you know when we're talking about the headlines you know, for for the economists to look at this stuff, that's the most important numbers for individual people. I think from an investor, three things that I'm paying close attention to right now. Uh, one is household formation, just the number of people that move out of their parents' home and get their own roof over their heads. Mm-hmm. That's really important because that adds to demand for housing, which is a big driver of the economy. And it's also when people are moving out of their parents, it shows that they have confidence in the economy uh, or alternatively that, that their parents just don't like them anymore. <laughs> but we, we hope it's the former. But that's a really important uh, stat to watch in terms of how well the economy is doing. The second one is business investment, just how much money businesses are spending on uh, building and upgrading factories and machinery and new computers and whatnot. That's a figure that fell off quite a bit during the recession. As the economy fell, businesses just didn't have the incentive to invest anymore. But you come to a, a point where two things can happen. One, the economy gets stronger, so there's demand to build new factories. And two, your factory just wears out. It gets too old and you have to replace it. So I think that's probably going to be a number that's going to start rebounding pretty quickly and will have a big impact on the economy. Uh, The third is consumer credit, just how much individuals and households are borrowing, whether it's a mortgage or credit cards or whatnot. That's a number that declined substantially for years during the recession, Mm -hmm. and it needed to decline because it was way too high. That's why we got in this mess to begin with. But it really slows down the economy when people are paying down debt or defaulting on their mortgage. That's not good for the economy, but it looks like we're at a point now where that's probably bottoming, mm-hmm. and it's so low now that consumers are probably in a spot where they can borrow safely and sustainably going forward, which is great for the economy. So those are the three numbers that I'm paying close attention to. So media gets a lot right about the economy, also gets a lot wrong. What do you think is the single biggest misconception about economics? Uh, I, I, I would point out two. One, there's a great quote I heard the other day, and it was, the only reason that economists use decimal points is to prove they have a sense of humor. I, I think that's really important, that we talk about these things like we know precisely what's going on and what precisely is going to happen next to the nearest decimal point, when at, at best we're making educated guesses. And if you look in hindsight at what people forecast would happen versus what actually happened, it's ridiculous that we use decimal points when we're talking about economic growth or uh, job growth because we can barely get these things within you know, a huge margin of error. So, so I, I think that's one point that you know, it's just advocating humility when we're, when we're talking about these numbers. Number two is just assuming that the economy is a simple machine that you can say, if I pull a lever over here, something over there is going to happen. Something that is predictable is going to happen. I think it's just so complicated in the economy that we almost never have that kind of certainty. You know, an economy was 300 million people and 30 million businesses and 70,000 pages of tax code. Mm-hmm. It's just so incredibly complicated that whenever you're talking about policy, if you, know, if you raise taxes, then this is going to happen. Or if you have a stimulus package, then this is going to happen. It's never that simple. But a lot of politicians and economists want to assume it is that simple. And it's a dangerous assumption to make. Thinking ahead over, say, the next 20 years, the next two decades, what are you most excited about when it comes to the U.S. economy? I'm, I'm always uh, generally pretty optimistic. And being a permanent optimist doesn't mean you don't think bad things are going to happen. That's why I like talking to you. I know. It's fun <laughs> to talk to me, right? Being an optimist doesn't mean you don't think bad things are going to happen. There's always going to be recessions and wars and bankruptcies and market crashes. But it's just an observation that over a long period of time that 
progress outweighs all those things. So one thing I like thinking about, you know, in the 1920s, if you had power in your home, you had to be rich. Mm -hmm. And then before long, everyone had it. In the 1930s, if you had a refrigerator in your home, you had to be rich. And then everyone had it. You know, in the 1950s, you had to be rich to fly. Now you can fly coast to coast for like 300 bucks. Uh, in the 1980s, you had to be rich to own a, a PC. And now you can, you can buy a phone that's 100 times as powerful for next to nothing. And that'll be true 20 years from now as well. Things that we think are incredible luxuries today will be standard 20 years from now. So you know, what do I get most excited about? I think I'm just generally optimistic that 20 years from now, people will be living better than they do today. And I'll be driving a Lexus. Matt will still be driving a Lexus. All right. <laughs> All right, Morgan, thanks a lot for joining thanks us. Thanks for having me. Well, we're back. Great to hear from Morgan as always. Let's go ahead and close out the show, close out the week on the Twitter sphere. David, what's our first tweet? First tweet's from American Banker. Bank CEOs struggle to move beyond cost-cutting to actually growing. Sounds like a good idea. That is a good idea, but it's been hard to do, I guess. <laughs> um, we hear this a lot uh, when the banks are reporting earnings. Everyone's saying, oh, they're just cutting costs. And, like, that's such a bad thing. I understand that you can't cut costs forever, but they can continue to right-size the cost structure of their bank. I, I can picture an ideal world where banks are continually reducing their expenses as technology gets better, reduce the branch count, reduce employees that are appropriate. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't think it's a bad thing. I think they can continue to cut costs and the incremental revenue will just be a boost as well. Real money. It is. All right, let's go to the second tweet. We've got Carl Richards. That's at Behavior Gap. He says, Behavior Gap exists in index funds as well. Vanguard S&P 500 index fund, 15-year return, 4.58%. Average investor in the fund, 2.68%. This is something that I've mentioned on the show a few times before, is that one of the most important things to consider when you're investing is your own psychology, your own comfort level with things. Because the worst thing that you can do is to buy and to sell at the wrong times. And if you're investing in things that you don't understand and are not comfortable with, Vanguard 500 index fund shouldn't be it. Um, but maybe if you've levered your, your portfolio too much to equities, that could make you uncomfortable. But that's where you uh, can often end up with those kind of disparities, where mm-hmm. you're going to underperform the index because you're buying and selling at the wrong times, getting scared out when everybody else is getting scared out, buying in when everybody else is euphoric. This is my personal opinion, but you should not be selling a Vanguard S&P index fund, unless it's for a life event. You need the money to pay for a wedding, college, retirement. Don't do it. If you're 30 years old and you don't need the money and you're retiring in 40 years, do not sell your index fund, in my opinion. You heard it here. David putting his foot down. I don't know how that made sense with that. <laughs> All right, final tweet of the day. We've got, in case you missed it, Google is making a smart contact lens. I I will admit, when I first saw the picture that they included with it, I was thinking, looking out and seeing the world like predator style. What this actually, the article says, is that it will be for detecting glucose levels to help uh, diabetics um, be able to monitor their glucose levels better and more easily. Perhaps also include some sort of light signal in there to, to alert dangerous levels. Wow. Pretty cool. Here's a question for you and a question for the WTMIers who can answer the question on Twitter at TMF Financials or on our Facebook page, TMF or, or Motley Fool Financial Services. That's mm-hmm. our Facebook page. Here's the question. If you could get any sort of information displayed in your, in your view field from a, a magical contact lens, a smart mm-hmm. contact lens, what would it be? I think you've got to go food kind of the breakdown of the food, knowing exactly what's going into the body. You've got to treat the body like a temple. Oh, so, so it analyzes your food. It analyzes the food. It says what's good, what's bad in it. 
How about it, so like total calories? Or it tells you the optimal time when you should stop eating. So when you're wow. when's the optimal amount of food, and it knows. I had some other ideas, but you just you just blew my mind. That's what we do. All right, that's the show for today. That's the show for the week. I'm Matt Copenheffer. This here is David Hansen. Uh, email us, WTMI at fool.com, and we will see you next Tuesday. People on the show may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. Don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear.